Before I uh, say some things personally and then we look to the Word of God, I want to just mention a few things, spring break coming up. I just want to give you a little bit of perspective. I don't get often the opportunity to do this, but uh, just to let you know how things are going around the college. We had a great board meeting uh, just recently, the, the best we've had in a long, long time. Very, very encouraging. I have been, since that board meeting, talking to various board members and meeting with some some new people who have shown a tremendous interest in our school. Some quite remarkable things are happening for which we really do thank the Lord. We're very encouraged and very excited about what is on the horizon. People who are stepping up to assist us, who have great means and great commitment. Very enthused about it. We also are doing everything we possibly can to help you. Just to give you a little bit of a perspective um, from the financial side, first of all, uh, we're going to have technically no increase to the bottom line in costs next year. That's very rare. Pepperdine, for example, is going up $1,500 to $25,000 a year. Westmont is going up $2,000 to $20,400. Biola is going up $1,000 to $16,500. Cal Lutheran is up to $17,000. Point Loma is going up $1,500 to $15,000 uh, $15, a year, and we're going to hold the line right where it is, and we want to do that. And at the same time, we're increasing our scholarship funds so that we can make it even easier for students to come who have need. We want you, when you go home, to uh, do a few things. Talk about the school. Listen, if you have a Christian radio station in your area, you may have the opportunity to hear a national advertising campaign that's going to be played all across America. We want also, when you're home, if you can, to identify some folks that might be prospective students or parents of prospective students write their names and phone numbers down, give them to our admissions office, even some folks that you think might be interested in giving or donating to the school, anything like that, uh, we, we would love for you to help us with. We have some new people. I'm very enthused about it. I met with a group of people just this week, and all of them made major commitments to strengthen our school, and not just from the financial side, that plus coming alongside and assisting us in some marvelous ways to do what we do even better than we've done it in the past. We're very grateful for that. We, we need that. We're excited about it. We're excited about this new radio advertising campaign, which is free to us, being given to us as really a donation, uh, maybe $20,000, $25,000 and up kind of advertising costs have been saved because of the kindness of the folks who've done this. I also want to let you know how grateful I am for your response during the earthquake. We continue to get... Um, Tremendous mail. I got a letter from a very prominent guy in the business world who recently uh, I went over to visit just to renew my fellowship with him, and we had a nice conversation, and he asked me all about the school, and he said, I suppose you want me to give you some money for the school. And I said, no, I, I don't want to ask for anything like that. I just want to renew our acquaintance and our fellowship and kind of share my heart. I don't want you to feel burdened. He said, well, I mean, couldn't I just give a little bit? And I said, well, you don't need to do that because I don't want you to think that every time I show up, you, you, you know, you're going to duck because I'm going to ask for money. He said, well, at least let me give you 50000 So I said, okay. <laughs> um, you didn't know that, but some of you, 15 of you, went over and helped him organize his business after it was all torn up and his buildings were condemned in the earthquake. He wrote a beautiful letter thanking us, and he knew that it wasn't in response to his gift because the people who came to serve him didn't even know about that. 
We had a number of things like that. We, we got a letter this morning I was reading along the same line. Some of you went to help some folks in the community, and they were not Christian people, but they were so overwhelmed at your kindness that they sent a check to the college. And I just want to thank you for the way you responded during that time. It was, it was just tremendous. Uh, the, the message about how you reacted went all across this country. Uh, we had it on almost every radio network in the nation, Christian radio network in the nation. I want to just mention something that's coming up in the fall that I think you'll be excited about. You can start to talk this up. Because of a major donation from someone who's never given in the past to our school, we will be introducing in September a brand new major in computer science, and it's a major in software engineering. We will be one of the few colleges offering a Bachelor of Arts in software engineering. We will have a new computer lab for the fall semester with 30 workstations. We're really excited about that. We also have the privilege of adding a new faculty member in the fall, a man by the name of Ron Johnson, who will be joining our Bible faculty. And if you want to know anything about him, you can talk to Doug Bookman or somebody in the Bible department who has met him. I know Doug has known him for many years and is just ecstatic that he's going to be coming out from Minnesota to be a part of our faculty. He's going to add a tremendous richness to our Bible department, and we're just excited about it. So great things are happening. I just want to kind of let you know about that so you can go home excited, share it with your parents and with the folks that you know and even at your church. These have been busy days for me, and one of the reasons I haven't spoken to you in chapel as often as I like is because I've been all over the world and all over everywhere and, and trying to cover a lot of bases and a lot of different projects. You probably know that I spent some time over in the Ukraine. We had a tremendous time. We met with all the church leaders. And there is a new president of the church in Russia, a new president of the church in Belarus, a new president in the Ukraine. And by God's wonderful providence, all three of those presidents and all three of their translators will be here for the Shepherds Conference at Grace Church March 16 through 20. They're all flying over to spend that week with us, and we're very excited about that because we want to maintain close relationships with these new leaders so that we can continue to have an impact in those needy, needy nations for the cause of Jesus Christ. We want to continue to help the church and to strengthen them in every way we can. It's been very exciting to see all of this sort of unfolding. At the Shepherds Conference coming up in just a week, a week from Wednesday, it begins. We're going to have pastors from 11 nations of the world. Thirty of them arrive from South Africa on Saturday. There are another 20 from the United Kingdom. There are another 20 from New Zealand and uh, various other places, several coming from Brazil. And I'm not sure all of the countries, but we're so very excited about that because we can introduce all of them to what God is doing not only in our church but here at the Master's College and the Master's Seminary as well. I want to encourage you to pray for our seminary. There, there are so many young men there who are studying for the ministry. We have the largest enrollment ever. It's over 200. All of them are training to preach and teach God's Word. They are a noble group of young men, just really an incredible group of men. I continue to be amazed as I meet them one after the other. In fact, I was talking to a medical doctor friend of mine last night from, from Brisbane in Australia who was visiting our church in a medical convention in the States. And, and he knows I have problems with my knees. And he said, well, look, he said, uh, you, don't need to, you don't need me to tell you about how to do your knees. He said, you've got an orthopedic surgeon who just left his practice, brought his whole family out, and is now studying to be a preacher and a pastor in the Master's Seminary. So you can just go and talk to him. He'll, he'll help you with whatever you need. God has given us a tremendous group of men there. They need your continued prayers. I just want to encourage you to hold them up. The seminary is, is growing 
And we're privileged now with a student body of 200, and by the end of this decade, the year 2000, we believe we'll have 400, to be putting anywhere from 50 to 100 men out to pastor churches every year, which is a tremendous, tremendous impact. So you pray for what God is doing at the Master's Seminary. I've also been very busy in the last number of months writing a new book. As you know, about every six months I write a book that uh, uh, sometimes is controversial. Not always, but sometimes. And I've been working on a book. It's a book that is really very, very timely. Our culture has a real problem with the issue of sin. We're not sure if you go down to Mexico and buy a gun and pump 16 bullets in your parents, you have to go out of the house and reload five times, then take all their money and spend it. We're not sure whether you really did anything wrong. If you emasculated your husband and you had reason to do it, fine. Morality has been redefined as not what you do, but why you do it. Nothing is sinful. We've lost our conscience. If you think things are difficult in our culture now, you haven't seen anything yet. When everybody is free to do whatever he wants, if he has some personal vendetta to fulfill. It's an incredible thing when a culture turns its back on sin. So I've written this book dealing with that, and the title of it is The Vanishing Conscience. It'll be out in about a week or two. The Vanishing Conscience, the subtitle is Drawing the Line in a No-Fault, Guilt-Free Society. It really is a presentation of the doctrine of human depravity against the background of a culture that is denying depravity totally. So you can pray for the ministry of that book. And along that line, I want to talk to you this morning. I want to talk about the vanishing conscience. I want you to open your Bible and look with me at one verse, and I just want to use that verse as a sort of a launch point. If you've been at Grace Church, you know I've preached through the first chapter of 2 Corinthians and covered the great truth of this verse, but I want to approach it maybe in a, a little more of a summary fashion this morning. 2 Corinthians 1.12. 2 Corinthians 1.12. Paul says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. That is a tremendous testimony. Paul is being attacked by some false apostles in Corinth. They're accusing him of sin they're accusing him of manipulation, deceit. They're accusing him of falsifying the truth about his ministry. They're accusing him of teaching lies not from God. They're accusing him of doing his ministry for money and even for sexual favors from women. They're accusing him of everything imaginable. And where does Paul go to defend himself? could have said, well, look, I'm going to send you some letters from people who know me. They'll tell you what a good guy I am, and they'll tell you these things aren't true. Or I've appointed an ad hoc committee with representatives from all the churches, and they got together, and they studied my life, and they studied my ministry, and they're going to send you a full 30-page report, and they will affirm the integrity of my life and ministry, but he doesn't do that. He goes to a higher court than his friends, a higher court than his peers. He goes to the highest court on earth, the human conscience. And he says... 
Our proud confidence, in spite of all your assaults and attacks, our proud confidence is this, the testimony, not of our friends, not of a committee, but the testimony of our what? Conscience. That is a marvelous statement. Paul is saying, when I want to know the integrity of my life, all I have to do is look inside. And my conscience tells me that I have lived, notice it in verse 12, in holiness and godly sincerity. Now, there is a man who is at peace with himself. There is a man who knows the essence of real joy. Because his conscience is at rest. There's nothing inside accusing him. Most of us would be prone to defend ourselves against some attack by saying, prove it. Or by saying, well, let me have you talk to some of my friends. They'll tell you the truth about me. Could we actually say to someone, our proud confidence is this. I know the integrity of my life because my conscience affirms deep down within me that I am living in holiness and godly sincerity. That is the highest court on earth. Listening to your conscience is crucial. It's crucial because your conscience will tell you about yourself. What you are deep down in your heart, in the level of your conscience, is really what you are, nothing more. The conscience can be simply defined as the soul's warning system. The conscience is like pain to the physical body. Pain is a gift from God. Pain is a wonderful blessing because pain tells you your body is sick or your body is wounded or your body is injured. And you need to know that so that you don't die from that wound, that injury, or that sickness. Pain is your body's way of saying you need physical help. Conscience is the same thing in the soul. Conscience says there's something wrong inside. There's something wrong, not in the physical, but in the spiritual dimension. There's something isn't right. It's that conscience that cries out about our sin. And we need to listen to conscience. Our society today doesn't want to do that. First of all, our society doesn't even want to inform conscience properly. And by eliminating any standard of morality, the conscience has no information on which to operate. Your conscience, your conscience is like a skylight. A skylight doesn't have any light. It doesn't give any light. It just lets light pass through. Your conscience is like that. What comes through your conscience to you comes from something above your conscience. What is it? Knowledge. A standard. And because you are a Christian, because you have been raised to some extent or have lived with Christians for some part of your life, because you have heard the Bible taught and preached, because you have read the Scripture, because you have studied God's truth, you have plenty of light coming through that skylight. In other words, you have a well-informed conscience. A well-informed conscience. That's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. Because your conscience is not the voice of God. Your conscience is not the source of truth. Your conscience only can tell you what it is told 
So whatever moral standard you hold to, whatever is the highest law to which you believe you must conform is what will inform your conscience. And because you have been taught the Word of God, you have a very well-informed conscience. Your conscience simply takes the Word of God, which you know, and uses it to either accuse you, Romans 2.15, or excuse you. If you do something wrong, your conscience will plague you. If you do something right, you'll find peace in your heart. Conscience simply lets the truth pass through to accuse or excuse. And listening to your conscience is absolutely crucial, especially when you have a well-informed conscience. In 1984, Avianca Airlines, which is the major airline in the country of Spain, suffered a tremendous crash. A plane crashed into a mountain in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. They sifted through all of the rubble of a totally destroyed airplane, looking for the little black box which has the cockpit recorder in it so they could get the information about what was going on in the cockpit prior to the crash. They found the little black box and they got the tape and they played the tape and much to their astonishment and amazement, several minutes before the crash, a shrill computer synthesized voice in the little black box started saying in English, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. Inexplicably and amazingly, the pilot then said, shut up, gringo and flipped off the switch. Within seconds, the plane hit a mountain and 120 people were instantaneously incinerated. That is a parable of how the conscience works. You know why the little box said pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up? Because it was being informed. It was being informed by what? By radar. And radar was telling the truth. The radar beam went out and it hit the mountain and, the, and it read how far the mountain was from the nose of the plane and it informed the little black box, the conscience of the airplane and the little synthesized computer shrill voice said, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up because it was so properly informed by the radar. What a fool the pilot was to say, shut up, gringo, and flip off the little voice. That is exactly what people do. The conscience, your conscience, is informed by the Word of God. And the Word of God is accurate, and it is informing your conscience accurately about the danger that you're in. And your conscience is saying, pull up, pull up, stop, don't do that. That's not right. Don't do that. Don't do that. And you can train yourself to say, shut up, gringo, and flip the switch. But if you do, you'll crash and burn. I ask myself again and again why it is that so many men in ministry crash and burn morally. And the only answer I can come up with is not that they don't have a well-informed radar system, they know the truth of God, not that they don't have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience, even pagans. It's a human faculty. But it is that they have trained themselves to shut it off. Deadly deadly. The conscience is a gift from God. It is a marvelous gift from God. 
It is a warning system in your soul. Now, in our day, the wisdom, quote-unquote, of our age says guilt feelings are always erroneous and harmful. You've got to switch that little box off. You've got to say, shut up, gringo. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel responsible. Don't feel like it's your fault. If you do anything wrong, why, after all, you're a victim of somebody else. Don't feel trauma inside. Think highly of yourself. Boost your self-esteem. Don't live with guilt. Contemporary psychology has redefined man as good and noble. And when he does something that doesn't make sense, not that's wrong or right, that's not an issue, but when he does something that really doesn't make sense, he is a victim of some abuse or some codependency or some negative influence or whatever. And so we're told basically to just silence conscience. Sometimes when we read about a mass murder, or we read about some pervert who molests a three-year-old girl sexually and then hacks her body up, we say to ourselves, how could any human being do such an unconscionable act, right? And the reason is because they have silenced their conscience. Sometimes those people that do that, interestingly enough, have been raised in strong fundamentalist environments where they've been exposed even to the Bible. The conscience is a God-given gift that you must listen to very carefully or you may end up doing things that are unconscionable. You can so ignore your conscience that you, you have a seared conscience, Paul called it. Literally, it's been burned over and burned over and burned over so that nothing there feels anything. I experienced that when I had an automobile accident. My back was severely burned by friction as I slid 125 yards down the pavement on my back. There is scar tissue in one huge section in the middle of my back, and it can't, I can't feel it. Nothing, there's no feeling there at all. Totally insensitive. That is a seared conscience. It doesn't feel anything anymore because it's been desensitized so systematically. Let me give you another illustration of that. Some of you read about leprosy. It used to fascinate me as a young person in my education. I wrote a paper on leprosy because it was such an interesting disease. And I remember seeing many films and pictures in medical books of people with leprosy. And even recently, I've looked over some of them in connection with some of my teaching. And you see people whose fingers are gone, whose hands are gone, uh, people who have huge gouges right out of their arms or out of their face, their nose is gone, their ears are gone, their eyeballs are gone. Parts of their shoulders and chest are sunken and gone. They're just grotesque. And I used to think that the disease of leprosy ate away at a person. And then I learned that it doesn't. What leprosy does is destroy your feeling. You can't feel anything. It destroys the nerves. You literally wear off your fingers because you can't feel. And if you can't feel, you can't understand how much pressure to apply. And they literally rub off their nose right off their face because they can't feel how hard they're rubbing. And you literally dig holes in your flesh. When you lose that sensitivity, it's only a matter of time before you kill yourself. Rubbing out your eyes. Conscience protects the soul from that same kind of disastrous obliteration of feeling. And when your conscience is sensitive, it'll produce feelings of shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and disgrace and anguish and depression when you sin. 
Conventional wisdom says you ought to ignore it. You ought to train yourself to ignore it. It wants to reinform your conscience. The second thing that conventional wisdom wants to do, and this is perhaps in some ways even more deadly, conventional wisdom wants to change the standard that informs your conscience. You know, everybody who's born into the world has a knowledge of right and wrong. Is that not true? So much so that Romans 1 says men are without what? Excuse. They have within them, says Romans 2.14, the law of God. Even those who have not the written law have the law written in their hearts. But in our world today, not only are they telling us to silence our conscience and shut off that switch and don't accept the fact that you're guilty and build your self-esteem and blame somebody else, you're a victim, you've been abused. Not only are they teaching a whole generation of people to switch off their conscience, and the result of that is absolutely frightening, in the next generation. But they're redefining behavior, redefining what is right, and redefining what is wrong if, in fact, anything is wrong. Recently, MTV did a special. I don't watch MTV. I don't have MTV on my TV, but MTV did a two-hour special, and they showed it on the PBS public broadcast. The title of it was, are you ready for this, The Seven Deadly Sins. Can you imagine MTV doing a series on the seven deadly sins? MTV, you know what their mission statement is? You know why they exist? They exist purposely to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They exist to destroy conventional morality. They exist to blaspheme God. It is broadcasting nonstop images of sex, drugs, violence, and blasphemy. That's why they exist. To overturn morality. And they're doing it successfully in the culture of our young people today. Their highest rated program is that animated series featuring Beavis and his unmentionable buddy, All they do is sit down all day and watch music videos and corrupt themselves. They have plumbed the depths of moral nihilism. So MTV is the last place you'd expect to see something on the seven deadly sins. By the way, the seven deadly sins was a catalog of motivational iniquity that was developed during the Middle Ages. Not that there are only seven sins, but there are seven motivations that literally generate all kinds of sins. The middle-aged clerics, not a biblical list, but it does fit Scripture, but some middle-aged clerics put together this list and they said all sins come out of these seven motivational sins. What are they? Pride, covetousness, lust, anger, envy, gluttony, and laziness. And they said all sin comes out of that. So MTV decided to do a survey on the seven deadly sins. Now, first of all, to them, sin is something that is unkind or inadvisable. Not wrong or right, but inadvisable or unkind. Now, in order to get a popular opinion on this, they went out and interviewed uh, gangster rappers, uh, acid heads. They even interviewed cartoon characters like Beavis. They interviewed um, The Simpsons. I mean, you can interview a cartoon character and get whatever answer you want, obviously. They interviewed celebrities. 
movie stars, and then they went to the mall and interviewed the typical mall folks who hang around the food park. And here are some of the things they found out. They interviewed Queen Latifah. And they want to ask her about pride. She said, pride is a sin? I wasn't aware of that. Now, how well informed is her conscience? Then they interviewed Kirstie Alley. She said, I don't think pride is a sin, and I think some idiot made that up. Then they interviewed one of the singers in Aerosmith, and they asked him about the sin of lust. He said, lust is a sin, man. Lust is what I live for. It's what I got into the band for, those little girls in the front row. And then no less a theologian than rapper Ice-T was interviewed. And they asked Ice-T about anger. What about the sin of anger? He said, anger is no sin, it's necessary. You have to release this tension because life brings tension. We release our anger when we do records. When we did Cop Killer, we were angry and the cops got angry back. And then they introduced somebody in the Michael Douglas movie, Wall Street, who said, greed, greed is good. Greed's what motivates us. Ice-T said, pride is mandatory. That's one of the problems. Kids don't have enough pride. I got into a gang because of pride. You see how warped the culture is? Now, how in the world can the conscience, which is purely a human faculty, it is not the voice of God, and it is not the Word of God. It is simply a human faculty, like pain is a human faculty, and it will only respond to how well it is informed. Take a generation of people like that who have reclassified all the basic sins as not sins and ask yourself, how is the conscience going to function? It can't. And then ask yourself why they go up and down the street killing each other and raping each other and robbing each other. You say, don't they have a conscience? Yes, but it is, one, totally ill-informed, and two, it is trained to be silent. You want to look at our culture today, and you say you, you want to weep because of the tragedy of it. Well, weep more for the culture that's coming out of the generation of young people that are growing up under this influence. It is true, and I'll give you a little insight, which is really pretty profound. It is true that the conscience someday will speak its peace. The conscience of Kirstie Alley and Ice-T and Aerosmith and Queen Latifah and everybody else. There's coming a day when the conscience will speak its peace. Say, when's that? That's in hell. That's in hell. You read about hell. You read about weeping, wailing gnawing, gnashing of teeth. Why? Because there's going to be one thing true about hell. Conscience will be fully informed about iniquity, 
because before every soul is sent into final hell, they will be brought before the tribunal of God, and the record of their iniquities will be given, and they will be sentenced justly to an eternal damnation. Their conscience at that point by God is fully and completely informed, and it will be a relentless, eternal conscience plaguing and plaguing and plaguing and plaguing and accusing and accusing and accusing without relief. And therein lies the source of gnashing of teeth and gnawing, weeping, and wailing. John Flavel wrote in the 17th century, Conscience, which should have been the sinner's curb here on earth, becomes the whip that will lash his soul in hell. That which was the seat and center of all guilt now becomes the seat and center of all torment. In that day, conscience will make the damned sinner acutely aware that he deliberately, freely, gladly chose the lifestyle that led him to hell, and it will force him to admit the truth of every charge laid against him and the justice of every pain that he suffers forever and ever. Now, that's just a little introduction to the function of, uh, of conscience. And I'm saying to you, young people, as Christians... You have an active conscience, and you have a well-informed conscience, and that is a gift of God, and you must listen to your conscience. It is true, according to Romans chapter 14 and 15, that your conscience can be overly informed. That when you were little and you grew up in a kind of a legalistic environment, your, your, your people and your environment were pounding things on you that aren't really biblical, but your conscience is still sort of stuck with those? That's true. You can have an over-informed conscience as well as an under-informed conscience. But Paul says in Romans 14, don't violate it in either case. Eventually, you'll grow to understand your freedoms. You'll grow away from those legalistic things. But in the meantime, you don't want to train yourself not to listen to your conscience because the effect of that is deadly. I will listen to an over-informed conscience because if I train myself to silence an over-informed conscience, then I'm going to have a malfunctioning conscience. In time, you'll grow out of it. A young man came to me after church last night, and he was so burdened, a wonderful guy. He said, I was raised in Seventh-day Adventism, legalism up to my neck. And he said, I've become a Christian. I'm committed to Christ. I'm, I really believe I'm walking with the Lord. But he said, I have so many things that are imposed upon my conscience and I am so burdened by some of these old legalistic patterns like what I can eat and what I can drink and all the dietary stuff and, and maintaining a Saturday observance and all these other deals. How do I deal with that? And I said to him, just listen to your conscience and let God begin to grow you away from those old things. In time, He will do that. But don't violate your conscience because all you'll do is distress yourself and learn to silence your conscience. Now, that means we have to inform our conscience, and you're really in a wonderful place to do that. You have a highly informed conscience. I understand that. I spend my whole life studying the Bible. My conscience is so well informed, I can't get half a step into a good sin without all the bells and whistles and horns and everything blowing off in a, in a massive cacophony. Whoa, halt, pull up, stop, don't, eat, up. That's a blessing, isn't it? That's a blessing. The regular diet of the Scripture strengthens the moral law. 
a regular diet of the Scripture, listen, will strip off the overly scrupulous conscience, the stuff that you got loaded with that you don't really need to have. Just study the Word and you'll inform your conscience properly and you'll eliminate the stuff that was imposed on you that isn't necessary. You'll elevate the standard of God's law. Your conscience will be fully informed and your conscience will then become the most precious treasure you have and you can listen to the voice of conscience and because it's so well informed by the Word of God, it'll keep you following the path of righteousness. And someday you can say with the Apostle Paul, Accuse me if you must. Accuse me if you will. My proud confidence is this. The testimony of my conscience tells me I'm walking in holiness and godly sincerity. What a tremendous place to be, right? To be at peace in the inner man. Let me just give you another little thought, a little insight into this. At the moment that you were saved, your conscience was cleansed. That's right. Totally cleansed. Hebrews 10.22 says, The believer's heart was sprinkled from an evil conscience. Hebrews 9.14, The blood of Christ cleansed your conscience. Before you came to Christ, you felt the burden of sin. Your conscience was plaguing you. It had been informed by the truth, by the Word of God. Maybe your parents taught it to you. Maybe some friend. Who knows? Different in everybody's case. But your conscience was informed by the truth. And your conscience saw the sin in your life. And your conscience was then energized by the Holy Spirit. And it began to convict you of your sin. And you came to Christ. The moment you came to Christ, He cleansed your conscience. That's why many people say, when I came to Christ, I felt like a huge what was lifted off my back? Burden. What was that? The burden of an assaulting conscience. And you started out as a new Christian with a clean conscience. Your, con your conscience isn't accusing you of what you did before you were saved. That's all washed out. You may remember it, but the conscience doesn't bring it up as an accusation. You were cleansed. The past is gone. Now you start out your Christian life with a clear, clean, properly informed conscience and you want to maintain that and you want to elevate that by your study of God's Word. What a great gift from God that is. Tremendous gift from God. Now let me bring it down. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. I don't think ever, ever in my life I've heard that hymn sung. I, I'm pretty familiar with hymns, but here's one I've never heard. It was set to music because I have the music. This is what the hymn says. And it's a hymn to conscience, really. I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear, a sensibility to sin, a pain to feel it near. Help me the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me, I pray, the tender conscience give. He's praying for a tender conscience. That's a godly man. Make my conscience so sensitive to the reality of sin and righteousness in my life that at the very first kindling of the little fire, it tells me. At the very first approach of pride, it warns me. It says, pull up, pull up, pull up while I'm still a long way from the crash. The Apostle Paul in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 said, those who reject conscience will suffer shipwreck of their faith. If he'd have lived in our day, he would have said they'll suffer a plane crash. They'll hit the mountain. 
Now, I'm going to wrap it up, and this is the important part. How can I have a clear conscience? How can I have this kind of conscience? How can I say the testimony of my conscience is that I am living in holiness and godly sincerity? How can I have that? I'll tell you where it starts. You ready for this? It starts in your thought life. It starts in your thought life. No sin is more destructive to the conscience than sin in the mind. Sins of the mind assault the conscience like no other sins because the conscience is their only deterrent. The conscience is all alone battling them. Sometimes we say, now listen to this, sometimes we say, boy, it's really important to have a close Christian friend. Really important to have somebody you pray with, somebody you're accountable to. We ever talk like that? Because they help us walk a righteous life, a righteous path. It's so important to have close Christian friends that can hold us accountable. Let me tell you, that's exactly why sins of the mind are so devastating, because those are the sins that no Christian friend can help you with, nobody can help you with. The conscience all by itself is in there trying to fight that battle. Sins of the mind are devastating. Furthermore, they can happen at any time, even during chapel. Even during chapel when I'm talking about conscience and sins of the mind. And the mind can be a thousand times more evil than the behavior. So if you're really going to deal with your spiritual life and if you're going to have a quiet, peaceful conscience, you've got to deal with what's inside. You've got to deal with the sins of the mind because that's the real issue. Eventually, the sins of the mind are going to show up on the outside, but they can stay hidden for a long time. The mind sins in three ways. It sins in three ways. Number one, sins of remembering. Sins of remembering. What do I mean by that? The mind can cycle back through past iniquity and enjoy it all over again? You remember the time that you cheated on the test and got away with it? You remember the time that you said what you wanted to say to that person? You wanted to say it so bad, you said it, and the person was totally devastated, and you go back and you relish in that devastation. You did something you shouldn't have done when you were out with a member of the opposite sex, your mind can take you right back, cycle right back through that same experience, resurface all the emotions you felt then. Sins of remembering are cherishing past transgressions. Never forget talking to a wonderful, godly guy who had gotten married, married a lovely Christian girl. He had been a professional athlete, for years had lived a life that was filled with immorality. He said to me, I've come to Christ. He's cleansed my life. I've married a godly girl. He said, I cannot, I cannot enjoy my relationship with her at all because my mind is flooded with such wickedness and such evil memories. I remember working with a homosexual guy who came to Christ, was transformed, stopped living in his homosexual pattern. He came in one day to talk to me and he said, I just want you to know that I am miserable. I'm... He was weeping and I said, what is it? Have you fallen into the sin? He said, no, but I can't get rid of the memories. 
Remember when David said in Psalm 25, 7 to God, he said, Do not remember the sins of my youth. Remember that? David was asking God to forget what he couldn't forget. In Ezekiel 23, there's a prostitute by the name of Oholibah. And she is indicted in that chapter. And here's the indictment. She multiplied her harlotries. How? By remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot. That is an incredible statement. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 19. You know how you can multiply your sin? By just remembering it. And young people, that is another very good reason to keep your life pure. Because the sin you commit today may not just be the sin you commit today. It may be the sin you commit over and over and over and over for years of your life as your mind cycles you back through it. And to remember it is to commit it again, right? Satan loves to take you back and trek you through the past. The second way in which the mind sins... First, sins of remembering. Second, sins of scheming. Not going back, but going future, forward, plotting. In, in, in the book of Psalms, and particularly in Proverbs, many, many times, you probably find a dozen of them, it talks about a man who devises wickedness, who plots sin, who plans, like Psalm 36 says, he plans wickedness on his bed. He gets in the private place and it's dark and it's quiet and nobody's around and his mind runs and he begins to plot and plan and devise his iniquity. How he is going to defraud someone, how he is going to take advantage of someone, how he is going to cheat to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, how he's going to steal this or pill for that or compromise this girl or this guy or whatever it is. And he plots and plans. And the plotting and the planning itself is the sin in the mind that eventually gives birth to the sin in behavior. It can be anger, hatred, lust, greed, envy, covetousness, discontent, selfishness, pride. All of those things are sins of the mind. And the third way that the mind sins, one way in the past by remembering, one way in the future by scheming, another way in the present by imagining. The sins of fantasy. That is why, in particular, I have such a severe aversion to movies which depict wickedness. It's hard enough to deal with fantasies without visual images. Why would anyone expose himself or herself to the very imagery of wickedness that can be so indelibly implanted in the mind and make the imagining so much more easy? Proverbs 24.9 says, The thought of foolishness is sin. Just the thought of it. You know, Job had a bunch of friends that nobody needed. A bunch of an absolutely useless bunch who thought they were smart and didn't know anything. And they were trying to explain why Job had lost his family. They all died and lost his animals. They all died and got boils all over his body and his whole life was a mess. And he was a godly man. And so they came to the conclusion. They said, look, he must have a dirty mind because we can't see anything in his life. So he must have a dirty mind. I mean, who knows what's going on in that guy's head? They accused him of that in the 20th chapter of Job. He spent the, 20, the 31st chapter denying it. They, they didn't know what was in his heart. God did. God said, there's not a, not a man more righteous on the face of the earth. And God looks not at the outward appearance, but what? At the heart. 
The mind is where you got to deal with sin. How do you do it? Confess and forsake any sin in the mind. Refuse to give place to evil thoughts. Feed on the Word of God. Avoid the things that stimulate those mental images. Cultivate loving God. Just those spiritual issues. Sin is not really killed in the mind when it's just covered up. Internalizing it doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. You've got to confess it openly, forsake it, turn from what stimulates it, put yourself into the Word of God, cultivate loving Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'll ask you one simple thing in closing. Is it not bizarre to you that we won't sin outwardly because somebody might see us but we will be wretched inwardly even though we know God sees all of that. And so we opt out to offend whom? God. Startling, isn't it? That's the reality of it. It would be my prayer for you that you would be able to say, no matter what accusation made against you, the testimony of my conscience is that I have walked in holiness and godly sincerity. Let's stand and we'll have a closing moment of prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for giving us a conscience and thank You for informing it. God, I pray for every single person here. Lord, I pray that You will help us all to deal with the mind, the thought life, what's way down inside and help us to be utterly unwilling to offend You, knowing that You know every thought we have. Help us to be more concerned about offending You than we are about offending some other person, so that we start to deal with sin on the inside, and that takes care of sin on the outside. Make us a holy people, even as we sang about this morning. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.